0: We'd like to announce that we have new products in our online store. Show off your politics and your interest in combat sports, and support the Southpaw project, by wearing our swag. You can find the link to our store, at southpawpod.com. This episode, is dedicated to Johnny, Tina Elzung, Jared Keeling, and John Cronin, for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters, and helping to make this project possible. This is Sam. This is Paul. This is Karian. And this is Fight Fight. Study.
1: All right, today we have... Paul and Karian for the first time together. So all three of us, the main analysis team. Well, it used to be me and Paul, but now Karian's been doing a lot more stuff and she has some other stuff in the works. So let's say this is the main roster for now. So let's start with the main event. Israel Adesanya versus Marvin Vittori 2. Karian, let's have you go first. Let's first break down Marvin Vittori. You could kind of give us your assessment as far as what you thought he would come in with what your expectations were of him. And then if he lived up to those expectations and what you thought of his overall performance. And then after that, we'll talk about Israel Adesanya. Uh, My
2: thoughts on Marvin coming into this were um, that we'd probably see a lot of what he actually did in the fight. Um, He is a fighter that is really durable. Um, He has kind of like janky striking, but it works um, for him and he's got some decent wrestling as he showcased in the first match with um, Adasanya. but he just has a tendency to be a little slow and plodding, and um, coming into it, I just wasn't really confident that he'd be able to get a win over Izzy. Um, I felt like he had a better showing in the first fight just because of how he ended that one with his takedowns, but coming into this one... It looked like a lot of really plotting movement, getting takedowns, and not really being able to do anything with it. Um, he secured one good takedown in the first round, but Izzy was able to kind of drag himself all the way to the fence from like the middle of the cage and get back up um, while walking pretty easily. Um, yeah, I think it's it's hard because I think he's probably going to stay like a top five middleweight for a while. Um, I don't really see a lot of other middleweights coming up that'll be able to get him out of there anytime soon. But I also don't think that he's really going to be able to challenge for the title again until it's someone new. Like We've already seen him fight Izzy twice, and Izzy dealt with him better this time than he did the first. And I think that would just be a trend that's going to keep going. There are things that I really... Like wish that he would have brought in, that I was hoping we'd see more. I was hoping I would see like more punching to the body, more body kicks and leg kicks and stuff like that. But he seemed to just kind of get enticed into head hunting a lot. And I mean, Izzy's a great defensive like footwork fighter, a great defensive head movement fighter. It's going to be hard for a lot of people with pretty decent striking to catch Izzy. But he got drawn into it really hard and Without those other attacks to other parts of the body, I don't think anyone's ever going to really be able to get Izzy out of there. Um, when you headhunt against him, he's too good at getting out of the way and getting off the cage and making space again.
1: Yeah. Aristania didn't dominate him, I would say, in any of the rounds. It was more like he just beat him every round, convincingly. So I guess in that way, Marvin did well enough to be competitive, and I guess that's a moral victory. <laughs> right. But he has so much self belief that he actually did think he won. So, right. Yeah. I wish I had some of that. I wish I had some of that self belief. I really enjoyed also Rafael Cordero's coaching in that he wasn't being comical and delusional like Vittori, but rather he gave really good corner advice and really was transparent about where Vittori was and what he needed to do to win. And if Marvin was able to execute everything, Cordero was talking about, he would have won, but he wasn't able to. But I would say Cordero is still a very masterful coach and knows exactly what he needs to tell his athletes, but also is very aware of how judging is going to work. Paul, what did you think about Marvin Vittori's performance and what did you think of his chances?
0: I didn't give Vittori much of a fighting chance, to be honest, because when I saw the trajectory of how much both have improved, It was clear that Adesanya has made more adjustments and gotten more used to the division as well as being comfortable with his style. Vittori, although impressive in his win streak, hasn't really shown, oh, I have this extra edge that can get me the win against Adesanya. Even with the takedowns, that's great that you're able to score them, but what can you do with them? Are you going to pass? Are you going to go for submissions? Or is it just to, I'll hold you, and then hope that's enough to steal the round. And then when I'm back on the feet, I'll get pieced up again. What do you mean by Adesanya being more used to the division? I think when you look at the comfort that Adesanya has against his opponents, as opposed to Vittori, it becomes apparent that one person is a lot more familiar with just little things that add up. So being familiar with where the cage is in relation to where they are, how much they can get away with coasting when they know that, okay, I only have 30 seconds left, I can kind of take it easy. Or how hard should I breathe? And when should I flurry? When should I pull back? So things like that, I think Adesanya has the edge in. And it could also be because he has such a longer fight career when you count his kickboxing background. And Vittori just always looked like, I have to do this, or I should do this. Whereas Adesanya was already okay, I'll just kind of wrap it up here. And then the next round, I'll focus on so-and-so.
1: Yeah, it seemed like Adesanya was much more aware of how judging worked in MMA. He was much more familiar with the criteria. So he knows what things count, what things don't, and how he needs to win each round. And Marvin, like a lot of MMA fighters, doesn't seem like he knows exactly how the rules work or ever looked it up. Or maybe he does, and he just doesn't care because he's so overconfident
0: in himself. There's an older clip out there of Andre Berto where he talks about fighting Floyd Mayweather. And what he describes is exactly how Mayweather wins, that no one really gives him credit for. So Berto described where Mayweather knows everything about the ring. He knows how hard it's going to feel when you punch him with eight ounce gloves. He knows how much you're breathing and how hard he's breathing. He knows exactly where his foot is in relation to the ropes. He can look at the ref and say, okay, I'm okay. He's not going to stop it anytime soon. Or I could get away with holding in case it gets too close. He knows every single piece of that. I'm not saying Adesanya is on that level, but he seems to have a better grasp of that than Vittori. Yeah. I would say
2: that it really looked like seeing Izzy as a fighter who has done his homework and knows how to research things and all of his opponents habits the rule set how the cage is gonna feel and really works um in a good like synchronization with his coaches whereas if you look at marvin he kind of looks like someone who's just trying to fuel all of what he's going to do in the cage off of how angry he is and how hard he's been working and we even saw with him and Rafael cordero if Rafael had a fighter that was a little bit more cerebral and had some really good like athletic capabilities, he probably would be able to train someone to be Izzy and prepare for that fight and get it done. But I just don't think Marvin's that guy.
1: In the fight, you saw Marvin's path to victory, just like you saw it the first time around. You saw what Marvin saw, why he thought he might win, or maybe why he even thought he did win, because he was able to take... Adasanya down, so he had better offensive wrestling, and he wouldn't be knocked out or just rocked or just bludgeoned by Adesanya. He knew he was going to be able to keep that damage to a minimum. He knew he wasn't going to gas out, and he knew he would be able to punch Adesanya and pressure him up against the fence. So we got glimpses of all of that. The problem was he wasn't able to do much with those things. Like When he got the takedown, his jujitsu. Wasn't as good as it needed to be to dominate Adasanya on the ground. His wrestling wasn't good enough to get multiple takedowns. His variety of offense wasn't great enough to really do something when he got Adesanya up against the fence. So, Stylebender didn't actually get to do the full style bending on Vittori. And I think every time they fight, it's going to be something like this where Izzy's just better than him, but he's not going to be able to do Matrix on him. And I think that's where. Marvin gets his confidence, but it'll go like this 10 times out of 10. And so because this was such a typical Adesanya fight, there's probably less to say about Adesanya. But Karian, is there anything that stood out for you? You know, I've seen like a lot of people immediately after the fight kind of
2: comparing it to almost like one of the classic Anderson Silva performances where you're like, you know. You looked really good and you looked like the champion, but also I can tell you're coasting and like you're showboating a lot. And you know, you obviously know you're winning, and it's hard to tell a fighter that they should take more risks and put that on the line and possibly give up that W to try to get someone out of there. But also, it can get tiring of watching someone that knows they're better, knows they're gonna win, knows that they're in control, and still doesn't look for that finish necessarily. Going in, I thought that Izzy would probably be able to increase the pace a little bit in the 4th and 5th and get Marvin out of there if he really wanted. If he could attack the body a little bit more and get Marvin tired, that chin that he has might um, finally go away. But yeah, he just kind of instead took time off and was able to just kind of keep kicking at the legs and keep getting points and knew how to make himself look good. But it's one of those things where, you know, I don't want to criticize that too hard, but also it would be more entertaining to do um, a
0: little bit more in this fight. Paul, what did you think about Israel Adesanya's performance? I thought Adesanya had the typical performance where it seemed more or less he was using Vittori as a scouting report or as a trip to say, okay, how far is everyone else along the division? If this guy is able to rack up five wins, What does that say about the opponents he's beaten? Almost as if to say, well, if Vittori was able to beat you, then you have no business fighting me. And it seemed more like a probing and prodding than it is, I'm going to go out there and dominate him. Even in the lead up to the fight, it seemed very dismissive. Like, eh, I'll fight you. Like, as if they're going to play a pickup game. And he already knows, I've beaten you before, so am I really going to practice my jump shot? Am I going to make sure I'm keyed in or do I just need to show up on weight and just beat you and call it a day and go home?
1: One thing is for sure, the Jan Blachowicz victory over Arasanya aged a lot better after this fight. And I think one benefit Arasanya has as middleweight champion is I can't think of any good young wrestlers to be able to challenge him. I think Vittori is probably one of the better, younger wrestlers good stamina wrestlers in the middleweight division. And he's not even a wrestler. He's somebody who picked up wrestling after MMA. You know, there's no young Chris Weidman. Chris Weidman, what's he going to do with him? Chris Weidman is so old and he has a broken leg. Who knows when he's going to come back? So when you're looking at good wrestlers in the middleweight division and you can only think of Chris Weidman, I think Adesanya is in a perfect window of time. And I think the reason why he is champion at the level that he is, meaning Even if there were good wrestlers, he probably would have been champion anyway, but the way he's been able to just shut people out, I think is also a testament to the middleweight division, not being very well-rounded and full of strikers mostly. And I think that's part of why middleweight is so tough is because you're doing all these like MMA striking matches and people just get beat up. And it's something that you're not going to see in 170. You have so many wrestlers at 170 and also 155. So anything below 185, you're going to get much more diversity of opponents and much more well-rounded opponents. So I think middleweight is still kind of a striker's division. And then, of course, the best striker is going to be the king of the hill. So let's move on to the next fight then, which was much more diverse in its areas of MMA, which was the flyweight title fight between Davis and Figueredo the champion versus Brandon Moreno, the challenger. This is the rematch. The first fight was close. It was a draw, but one judge gave it to Davison Figueroa. None of the judges gave it to Brandon Moreno. And I would say even most of the people watching at home would either consider it a draw or edge it for Figueredo. I don't know anybody who thought Moreno won. I know people who thought Moreno had a draw. So let's say the momentum was for Figueredo, and that's why he was the favorite going into this fight. And also, Figueredo had the tough weight cut. He's somebody who needs time to cut weight. Um, He was also sick. So all the expectations were on Figueredo to really showcase himself in this fight. But that's not what happened. We have Brandon Moreno winning by submission in round three. And Brandon Moreno is somebody who was the last pick on The Ultimate Fighter. He was also the last ranked. He lost in his first fight. He was also cut from the UFC not long after The Ultimate Fighter to only come back and then improve this much. So I think his improvement trajectory is better than anybody I've seen in a very, very long time. It's better than even Israel Adesanya or anybody else on this card. So Paul, what did you think about this fight? What did you think about Davidson Figueredo? What did you think about Brandon Moreno, especially in comparison to their first fight, which was so close? It
0: was bizarre. And when I say bizarre, I mean specifically for Davison Figueredo, because at times it seemed as if he thought, I did enough to win the first time around, so I'll just show up and did what I did last time. And it's almost as if he made no real discernible improvements to his game or prepared seriously for Moreno. And it was clear that Moreno actually took that time to say, okay, I am at this level. I can take him into the deep waters. So as long as I keep improving on what I have, I can definitely win the next time around. And that's more or less how it played out. I didn't have a prediction before the fight because it largely hinged on how serious Davison Figueredo would take it. And I guess the answer is not that seriously. What did you think about the fight, Karian?
2: Yeah, um, this was actually my favorite fight that I was looking forward to the most um, coming into the event. Um, I really liked the first fight a lot. I've seen some things where a lot of people seem to kind of be more harsh on Figueiredo than I think is really deserved. Cause I think that that takes things away from Moreno. Um, I feel like the biggest adjustment that Moreno made, that is a big adjustment for any MMA fighter. That's one of the first things you'll hear any coach say about MMA is Moreno made sure that this time he was first. In the first fight, he was getting backed up a lot and trying to counter Figueredo, and Figueredo was in his face and just kind of being the monster that a lot of people see Figueredo as. But in this fight, Moreno got out there immediately, started throwing in lo- like leg kicks that were really good, um, started working his boxing really well. There was a point where he shifts under like a overhand right from Figueredo in the first round and then drops him with a jab was really good um and then he was also able to improve upon his wrestling success that he had the first time and use more body locks and scramble onto the back anytime that figueredo tried to scramble up figueredo you know it was a hard weight cut as it always is and i can see that taking away some of from this performance but also it just looked like he was going in like paul said expecting just the first fight again and expecting it to be the same thing but you know, with him winning this time, and I feel like Moreno's pace immediately and the fact that Moreno almost kind of just seemed to like continue all the momentum he had gained in the first fight. It was like the fight had never stopped and it was just a round break between then and now for him. Um and I think that kind of caught Figueroa off guard, and then once he was on that back foot, he didn't know how to get back
1: into it. Even from watching the first fight. It was clear that Moreno was better on the ground. Moreno's jujitsu, especially on the Ultimate Fighter, was somebody who was like a very good scrappy blue or purple belt. Whereas now he looks like one of those competition sports jujitsu black belts. Figueredo has very good jujitsu for MMA. And I brought this up in the preview with Avery Clements, but he's more of a club and sub. Like, as soon as I get you to the ground, I'm looking for a finish. Whereas Moreno is somebody who could just roll and come out on top and either have a better position on you or be in a position to submit you. So that I knew. What surprised me was what Paul talked about, Davis and Figueredo. It was just bizarre. And for right now, it's hard for me to tell if it was Moreno. I mean, Moreno was obviously very good, but was it simply that or was it just a very off night for Davis and Figueredo? And I don't think we'll know until Davis and Figueredo fights again. And if somebody else is able to take the blueprint that Brandon Moreno did and replicate it, and he also looks like this, then you know it was Brandon Moreno because then you know it's the game plan. That style of fighting is what messed up Davis and Figueredo. If somebody tries that and he's able to just break through, then maybe it was an off night or he adjusted. So I'm curious to see how Davis and Figueredo Looks in the next fight, but I will say this: this did look like Davis and Figueroa before his title run, where he had problems being consistent because he would just wait and then get outpointed. So that part of me also says that maybe Moreno's camp studied a lot of tape and then realized this is his weakness and then improved upon what everybody else did prior. So we'll see when Figueroa fights again, and I guess we'll also see when. Brandon Moreno defends his title for the first time and how he looks. Is he somebody who just styles up very well against Davison Figueredo or is he just that good? So let's move on to the welterweight bout between Leon Edwards versus Nate Diaz. Karian, what did you think about this fight?
2: Yeah, this was a fight that I wasn't um, particularly super interested in coming in um, because I I'm just not someone that's really enticed by Nate Diaz jumping back into the top of the welterweight division at like a moment's notice all the time, but um, it was it was about the fight I thought it would be for the first four rounds with Leon kind of styling on him, um, showing off better grappling than I thought he would. I thought the grappling would be a problem for him if it went to the ground, but he had really good like leg rides, getting to the back, um, scrambles. He almost got caught in a few leg locks, but. Um, managed to get out of those pretty well but it's also a fight that has me a little bit disappointed with leon in some ways um because he just seems to not have this drive to push his advantages and get people out of there um he had wobbled nate with some leg kicks um tore his leg to shreds got some really good elbows in that had opened up cuts on Nate, which, you know, it's not really hard to get Nate to bleed, but that's a certain path to victory once you know it's there. But he just never really pushed those um, openings to their full extent. Um, He would kind of get those reactions where you would see Nate wobble on a leg kick or be constantly wiping blood out of his face. And then he would be like, okay, yeah, I'm just going to go back to like, Jabs, a kick every once in a while, like stuff like that. And then we saw that kind of catch up to him in the fifth, where Nate just rocked him really bad with that left straight. It's probably one of the hardest punches and like the most wobbled I've seen someone be without being finished in a very long time. And I don't know if that's because of Leon's ability to recover or if that's because it's Nate Diaz who wants to land something like that and then just make fun of you for a little bit about it instead of like actually knock you out but it ended up being a way more exciting fight than i thought it was going to be so i'm very happy about that nate looked really good actually for someone that hasn't been in there for very long despite getting kind of just trounced for the first four rounds um it didn't look like it was because nate is so bad but that's why leon was winning it looked like leon just was that good
1: yeah i would say leon edwards dominated nate For the first four rounds, more than Israel Adesanya dominated Marvin Vittori. The gap was that much wider. But I think part of why Adesanya never got rocked like that, fighting actually in Marvin Vittori another Southpaw, is because Israel stayed smart and I don't know if you would call it coasting, but did everything he needed to do to win on the judge's card, but also play safe. Whereas I think Leon's want to dominate and beat him up even more also puts you in the line of fire. And I think Leon Edwards has had other fights in the past where he's been rocked, where he's been dropped, or where he's lost the last round. I think these are all signature Leon Edwards where he does very well early on, and then he can get in trouble at the end. But in all of those fights, even when he gets in trouble at the end, he's able to recover. I think that's part of why they call him Rocky is because That must be something that has happened with him even before the UFC, where he gets beat up and like Rocky is able to endure and survive. Paul, what did you think about this fight? Especially how was Nate able to
0: rock Leon Edwards so late in the fight after getting beat up for so long? The thing about both Diaz brothers is that unless you finish them, they're always going to be in the fight. They don't have that one punch knockout power. That's typical of fighters like Derek Lewis, who are dangerous at any time. But if you give them any type of opening, they'll take it, especially if you're not going to be on guard the entire time. And Diaz had this weird possum slash where he would turn his back. It's almost akin to when, you know, you leave the front door, it's like, oh, I forgot my mask and then you turn around. It's as if he was like, Doo, do, do, I'm going to go do my thing. Oh, wait, I'm still not fighting. And then he turns and he tries to hit Leon Edwards. Early on, it almost seemed like a weird imitation of Guillermo Rigendau's cross step, where he takes a step and then he goes back and he punches you. But Edwards caught on early and he just punished him by striking him mid attempt. And there are a lot of typical Diaz openings like leg kicks, where Diaz never really adjusted other than switching stances. And this fight more or less showed why Diaz was at lightweight for most of his career. The way that Edwards was able to just push him down and ragdoll him was reminiscent of Dong Yun Kim and I believe Rory McDonald who were able to just take him down, hold him down, and beat him up and not get submitted. And as both of you mentioned, because Leon Edwards tends to, I don't want to say fade, but slow down as the fight goes on he gave that opening for Diaz to try and come back and take the fight from him. And this was the best case scenario for Diaz because now he could say, well, if there was another minute, I would have won. And it cements his mythos as, oh yeah, Diaz never loses. He just runs out of time. And he'll probably get another top shot because of the way the fight ended. And people just forget the first 20 minutes of like, oh, you know, but if there was one more minute... And we'll probably see Nate Diaz headline another event or at least get five rounds.
1: Let's move on to the next fight, which was the welterweight fight between Bilal Muhammad versus Damian Maya. Maya being one of the oldest active UFC fighters. He's also somebody who started MMA very late. I think he started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in his 20s. So he's been late to everything. He's one of the oldest. Like I said, he has a lot of miles on him because Not just from MMA, but also Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and just grappling is so hard on your hips and your knees. Paul, what did you think about Maya's inability to adapt once he couldn't get the single leg? Because I think part of the reason why Bilal Muhammad won the fight is because there wasn't much happening when they were actually exchanging. But every time Damian Maya couldn't get a takedown, that just looks bad. So judges are like, man, this guy looks bad trying to take him down and he can't. And secondly, it gave Muhammad a lot of chances to hop around on one leg and hit Maya in the head. I think that's where most of his significant strikes came from, is hopping around and uh, punching him, which then ended up with Maya giving Bilal the opportunity to win these rounds. So, going back to what I said, what do you think about Maya and his inability to adapt and change to win the fight?
0: In a weird way, the way Muhammad fought Maya reminded me of. Jose Aldo in his prime. It's not a perfect example, but Jose Aldo was comfortable feeding his lead leg to wrestlers and grapplers who only wanted to take him down. And the moment that Maya would try to snatch up his leg, Muhammad was either moving backwards, making sure that he pushed his hands down his neck and try to slide out or strike him. And I believe it was a younger cyborg of the grappler, who said whenever somebody tries to get him on a single leg, he'll limp leg his leg out and push the neck down and then try to escape that way. In MMA, Muhammad can use a fence to more or less prop himself up, strike to make sure that it dissuades future attempts. And Maya had success in that first round with it. So it might have embedded in his head, oh, well, this worked earlier. Why isn't it working now? I just need to put in more effort as opposed to, I might have to go to something else. And It was a sad state to see because in the past, Maya has been okay with going from one attempt to another. So he'll go for a single leg. It doesn't work. He'll try for a trip or even pull guard and try to reverse from there. But this time around, it might just be age. It might be he's stuck in his old ways of, oh, it worked earlier. I'm going to keep going for it again. But once in the second round, when he started breathing heavy and Muhammad started giving him different looks, it was more or less the end of the fight for him. This reminded me of a lot
1: of old-school BJ Penn fights where he would also feed people the single leg, hop around, and then just punch them in the face. That's what he did to Matt Sarah as well. So what did you think about this fight, Karian?
2: Yeah, um, I think it's just kind of Maya looking like uh, the saying that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's kind of been his go-to takedown for a while now is, you know, he came into the UFC with really good jujitsu, but not the best wrestling and got really good at the single leg and even pulling guard to then build up to the single leg out of like the dogfight position and got really good at taking guys down with that. And like Paul said, would still, you know, add in different attempts and stuff and would be able to chain them together really well. But at this point in his career, it seems like everyone knows that when Maya first tries to take you down, he's going to go for the single leg first. And if you have that limp leg defense, if you're ready for it, if you're able to hop around and just keep hitting him, especially now as he's gotten older and either can't keep up that pace of chain wrestling or is getting a little bit you know, too stubborn with it, um, you're probably just going to be able to take the round from him every time if you're ready to defend that takedown.
1: Maya reminded me a little bit of Marvin Vittori in that at the end, he thought he won (laughs) and he did win one round, unlike Marvin Vittori. I think he thought those punches he was taking from single leg wasn't counting for anything. So he must have believed that he was winning just on aggression and octagon control and really pushing the fight, which he did those things. But the number one judging criteria fans and a lot of fighters don't realize is all about effective striking and grappling, meaning it has to cause damage or it has to improve position on the ground, I mean, or it has to threaten a submission. But because this fight was not on the ground at all, then the only thing that counts is damage. And really, it was Bilal Muhammad doing all the damage. So if you don't know that and you think about it all as flat and equal, then I could see how even at the end, Damian Maya didn't think he needed to pull guard and submit him because he was like, I won the first round and I'm going after him. Like if it was a grappling match and it went to zero zero, Damian Maya would win for just aggression, right? So I could see why he would think he won, but it's also become clear that his opponents, they don't even need to be at the level of Kamaru Usman or Colby Covington. They just work on that single leg defense. And especially with the cage, it makes it even easier. And then just let him try the single leg and just punch him and just win rounds that way. So he's in a hard place where he has a style that's going to be hard to make effective
0: in the UFC. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you will help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod.
1: Let's move on to the light heavyweight fight between Paul Craig versus Jamal Hill, which in contrast to the Maya fight ended up being a pure grappling match. Let's start with you, Karian. What did you think about this fight and what did you think about Paul Craig's game plan to just pull guard?
2: Yeah, I mean, with the results he got, it's hard to argue against that game plan, <laughs> um, but this was something that coming in, I thought, you know, if it went to the ground, I thought Paul Craig probably would get the submission but i didn't think it was going to look this impressive he's kind of had a tendency in his other fights to you know come back from getting beat up on the feed or getting taken down a lot and get that last minute submission and stuff but for this one he had just beautiful z guard setups where he was going for that mirror lock where you kind of clamp down on the overhook and try to pull the opponent's um elbow in and kind of create like an americana pressure on the shoulder. Um, he almost hit that twice, and then went from that into like a double armbar setup that I was shown once. But he wasn't able to hit that double armbar, and instead transitioned to just um just a more traditional armbar that absolutely wrecked Hill's arm. It was gross to watch, but also super impressive. Like one of those car crash things where you can't look away. This is the best Jiu-Jitsu I've seen like on a card in some time, and really impressive for the light heavyweight division. It's not a division that's known for like its really exciting submission grapplers. So I liked seeing that from Craig a lot. Um, I do think he's going to have issues going forward with the game plan of guard pooling. Like, Just that's not a position you want to be in with some of the bigger, more defensively savvy guys in that division. If he works on his wrestling and he can get really good at that, I think he's got a really good path to victory for some of his fights in the future. But if he can't get takedowns and he can't control from the top, I wouldn't bet on him getting that sub from the bottom every time.
1: Jamal Hill lost the fight by technical submission. He never tapped. The referee stopped it because I think he either thought Hill was out from the triangle or he noticed that the arm had been severely dislocated. Either way, it wasn't because of a tap. With that said, I think both of Jamal Hill's arms were messed up. I think from that shoulder lock from the Z guard and also from the arm bar, I think both just got cranked and messed up. So he might be recovering from two bad arms. And so this is one of those things where it's like because of the injury and the severity, you don't know what his future is going to be like because he was such a striker. And it's not that he's the bad striker. We didn't get to see it because I don't think he was expecting Paul Craig to run up
0: on him and do a running guard pull. So, Paul, what did you think about this fight? So, I agree with everything that Karian said, but I would say in order for Craig to be successful in the future, it's not so much that he needs to work on his wrestling. He might be able to not in the metagame, yes, he should work on his wrestling, but Overall, he might have success looking at the playbooks of Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira and Damian Maya, when he dropped down to welterweight first because Nogueira famously went against fighters that didn't want to be taken down, so they sprawled on him relentlessly. So he would always use that fake attempt to, not fake attempt, but he would attempt to take him down They would sprawl on him and then he reverses it and takes him down anyways. And Maya, once he realized that enough wrestlers would sprawl on him and stuff him, he would go and more or less rely on his bottom game and not so much X guard, but he could use that to reverse position and try to keep the fight competitive until he gets on top. So he might be able to get away with it just because it's light heavyweight and there's a dire need for more competitors so outside of the top two or top three Paul (laughs) Craig might get his name in the top five sooner than later
2: yeah
1: also at this point in the game and at his current age already being in his 30s it's going to be hard to hope that his striking improves by leaps and bounds but because he is such a submission threat I think he can mix in level changes as a feint get people to bend over and then, you know, hit them from there, use the level change to set up uppercuts, knees, other things like that. And that's something I think even Damian Maya should have mixed in because Bilal Muhammad was so afraid of the takedown, he would over sprawl, over bend over. And if Damian Maya just was able to do something off of that, he could have really taken advantage of that just from a striking department. And then from there, once you mix in the striking, then they're not going to be as afraid of the takedowns. And then that's when you can take them down, which people who are good at mixing it up, that's the reason why they can get takedowns on superior wrestlers, even though they themselves might not have that good of a wrestling.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I feel like a lot of grapplers could benefit really well from um, just kind of doing the Kevin Randleman, Mirko Krokop set up a little bit more where you fakes the double leg and then just leaps into like a left hook or any other straight like that. Because in that fight, you saw Krokop's hips go back really far and then his chin straight out in the air.
1: Yeah. Take advantage of that fear. It's just like Israel Adesanya's setups. You fake one thing, get them to commit to that and then hit him with something else. Why can't you make level changes the same thing? Right. And you can't. And people who are good do like GSP was very good at that. And actually the next fight, somebody else was very good at that which was Brad Riddell. So we had the lightweight fight between Brad Riddell versus Drew Dober, which in my opinion was the best fight on this card.
0: Paul, can you break this fight down for us? When I saw Drew Dober was slated to fight again so quickly after getting dominated by Islam Makhachev, it could go one of two ways. Dober would come in safe and try to get another win on his record, or he would go all out to try and prove that he's better than the Makachev fight. And fortunately for us, we got the latter, and he got a partner in Brad Riddell who was willing to oblige. And there was a lot of back and forth action, and it seemed like the volume of Dober against the accuracy of Riddell, and both hurt each other. And it really just came down to the minor adjustments that Riddell made that Dober had no real answer for. It was one of those weird
1: fights where Dober at one point was winning, and it was close, even though. It was mostly a striking battle and Riddell was the better striker, but Dober had the better chin. So it ended up that Riddell would hit Dober so much and such clean shots, but then Dober would hit him once and it would wobble him. It kind of reminds me of a lot of Dan Henderson fights where Dan Henderson is getting beaten up and losing on points and then he hits one punch and it's over, except though dober's chin is probably as good as dan henderson's he doesn't have the same one punch knockout power dan henderson had karyan what did you think about this fight
0: yeah
2: this was just a really amazing fight um it didn't go the way that i um kind of imagined it would i'm coming in i kind of thought that you know drew dober's probably gonna have the better grappling brad is probably gonna have the better striking um dober's got a lot more experience um I saw him kind of probably being able to grapple his way to a win if he couldn't hurt Riddell in the striking. But it ended up being a thing where, you know, he tagged Riddell pretty early and wobbled him just thanks to that chin. And then Riddell actually out wrestled him after being hurt and was able to counter a lot of Dober's wrestling um, into better positions for himself. I really loved getting to see the accuracy of Riddell just kind of wear on Dober over time, because for the first two rounds, he looked straight up like Superman. Things were bouncing off of his chin. He was coming forward, still throwing hard, completely unfazed. But by the third round, um, Riddell's accurate punches finally cut up to him, and you saw him really start to back up and get panicked near the end. And then He managed to save himself just barely by getting into, you know, some panic wrestling and trying to grab a single leg to buy time, and Riddell was able to counter that really well into a like bottom crucifix where he had both arms trapped while underneath of Dober's chest and threw some good hammer fists from there and then got out and started trying to strike from the top before the round finally ended for the third. Yeah, it was an amazing display from both guys and so much was going on that i feel like i could go back to this fight like three separate times and get just really good analysis and stuff out of all the different clips and things but i feel like it would take me like three days to say everything i want to say about this fight
1: (laughs) it was a really good display of how an orthodox fighter beats and outstrikes a southpaw fighter because that right straight just kept coming and a really nice setup for it was that he would wait for dober to throw and then counter his counter so brad would throw something dober would counter and then riddell would counter the counter and punch him over dober's rear straight and a testament to dober's corner they caught on to that and told him that that's what riddell was doing and to try to counter that which at that point i think it gets too complicated when you're trying to counter the counter to the counter to the counter (laughs) to the counter
2: yeah
1: and that's not inaccurate cornering. That's not inaccurate analysis, but sometimes you got to think about what you're saying and it's so complicated. Maybe that is the truth, but maybe you should say something else. Maybe you should just say mix in wrestling or, you know, double up on your jab, something that's simpler. You don't want your athlete to be trying to figure out one of those math story problems in the middle of a fight, right? Right. And the commentary loved it because they're just such technique snobs, but you got to think about what's comprehensible in that fight, especially because Dober got hit so many times. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then I have to think about it. So he's punching and then you're punching and then he punches back and then, okay, then you punch (laughs) over that. And I'm like, dude, that's way too complicated, man. Like you gotta give him something else. So I think that is why he wasn't able to execute that game plan when they gave him that advice because nobody, nobody in that state is gonna be able to understand what the hell you want them to do. You just gotta simplify it. So I think it was one of those cases where, The cornering was too complicated. And I think because he was trying to time something or overthinking it, that is why he started getting hit and got rocked at the end. And also, I think it was like Riddell just outlasting him. Also, I think Dober was starting to tire out. But before this fight, we had a completely opposite version of this fight, which was the light heavyweight fight, Eric Anders versus Darren Stewart, another rematch. And if you notice a pattern here, The heavier it gets, the worse the fights are. (laughs) So Eric Anders beat Darren Stewart by decision. The first fight, Eric Anders was also winning until he hit an illegal knee. But in this fight, Darren Stewart was doing a lot better, especially in uh, the first round and a lot of the second round. But I don't even know how to say it. It's like frustrating to watch both of them because they both, can create these openings and then they don't do what you think they should do with them. So it's frustrating to watch or frustrating to root for either one of them. And it will be even hard to pick either one of these fighters to win any fights because you're just not confident in their ability to stick with a game plan or do the right things or be consistent. So Karian, what did you think about this fight?
2: Coming into it, I thought we'd see kind of the same things play out that were already happening in the first fight up until the illegal knee from Anders, where he seemed to just have a little bit better wrestling and speed to kind of make his striking more effective than Darren. And coming into it, I thought we'd probably see about the same thing and maybe Anders getting like a stoppage in the first or the second, but it almost seemed to me like... Eric Anders had this thing where he was so worried about the fact that he had lost the first fight via that no contest because it happened early enough. But he was so worried about that foul that he committed in the first fight that he was almost like thinking in his head the whole time, like, don't don't do anything like that again. Like, don't do any penalties. And then by the time they got to the third, it was pretty much about where it had ended up in the first fight before that knee just kind of took him time to get there but darren did look you know better than he did in the first it's just at light heavyweight that's not saying too much
1: eric anders doesn't have great wrestling or jiu-jitsu but darren stewart's wrestling and jiu-jitsu is even worse (laughs) yeah i was surprised at how darren stewart like from a jujitsu coach perspective was like doing all the things that would make you so mad if one of your (laughs) students or athletes was doing that like hip escaping the wrong way turning the wrong direction not getting the right underhooks or sometimes you're just confused what they're doing right and that's what Darren Stewart reminded me of and that's what was so frustrating it's like you could have jujitsu like this at 185 or light heavyweight and you could be in the UFC right and It makes it hard for me to say you could have a discussion about who's the pound for pound best or even greatest of all time if we're talking about 185
0: and above. So, Paul, what did you think about this fight? I thought Eric Anders was trying to do what Dominic Reyes is known for, which is that southpaw straight and high kick because, oh... I could do this, but it's like he skimmed the notes, but, didn't, <laughs> but he didn't bother uh, really seeing, okay, what makes it successful? Yeah, it has to come from the same side. There has to be a convincing feint. There has to be something that sets up both attacks. But if you just lob the left hand to try to get to the clinch, eventually even someone like Stewart will figure out, okay, well, this is coming, so I'll wait or I'll clinch up. And then from here, I can reverse it when we get to the fence. And once it got to the third round and Anders was able to take him down, it's hard to give Anders credit just because, if I recall correctly, it wasn't so much that he took him down, but he reversed something that Stewart did. Stewart got the first takedown. And
1: then I don't <laughs> even know what happened. I looked away for a second and I came back <laughs> and your boy was on top. And it's one of those like same thing where you see two blue belts who are inconsistent and you can't really rely on them to do the right thing. And they're both rolling against each other, and you look over, and it's like somebody else is on top. You turn away, you look over again, it's the other guy on top. <laughs> you know, it's completely like that. So this reminded me of that. I just saw Stuart get what looked like a clean takedown. And then next thing I know, <laughs> Eric, your boy Anders was on top yeah this was a this' a really interesting card in that we had so much
2: grappling that I loved seeing, like Moreno and Paul Craig and Riddell all had grappling that I was so into and loved watching as someone that really loves jiu and wrestling and then Eric anders and Darren Stewart that reminded me of like being a coach at a competition and I'm sitting by the mat trying to help someone through their match. And at some point I just stand up and I'm like, there's got to be someone else that would be better for me to just go coach. Cause like, I can't do anything to help you right now. I, like you just need to be better.
1: This is where you just walk away. Yeah. <laughs> you saw all this great grappling that you loved. And then you saw
0: grappling that you hated. Uh-huh. Anders seems to have a bad case of paralysis by analysis like the more he thinks things out the worse they end up being <laughs> because fighting for as cerebral as it is and as much game planning you need to do it's also fighting by instinct and taking advantage of openings but if you keep thinking i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do this it gives your opponent the chance to be like well if you're gonna win i'm just gonna go first and it's arguable that if Stewart didn't go for that takedown, Anders could have been down. And the way that the fight unfolded actually reminded me of one of the classic pride matches where Takunori Gomi beat Hayato Sakurai, where the fight was okay on the feet and then Sakurai went for a judo-style takedown, didn't get it, ended up down, and it got blasted by Gomi. And Stewart could have been in that position where, okay, I'm going to seal the deal with the takedown, and then it just ended up being his demise. These two fighters are like middleweight versions of heavyweight fighters.
1: Yeah. Let's move on to the next fight, which was a competitive scrap between Lauren Murphy and Joanne Calderwood. And this had divisional implications because it was at women's flyweight. And Lauren Murphy has been so close and consistent and probably needed just one more win to say she's the next for the title. So it's interesting in that, there's so many other fighters who like just get the title shot because the division is thin or weak or they just had one victory. Mm-hmm. Whereas with somebody like Laura Murphy, she's had to win five in a row and she's still not guaranteed a title shot at Valentina. So I don't know what the deal is with Laura Murphy where other people can get it after one victory. <laughs> Do they just forget that she's on the roster or they don't like her? I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I think more than any other challenger that. Valentina's ever faced other than Joanna Jacek. I say Lauren Murphy is the most deserving. I'm not even saying Lauren Murphy is going to win. It's just that you got to give her the shot because she deserves it. But with that said, this was a tough scrap. Joanne Calderwood was somebody who also had a title shot at one point. Her problem is she's inconsistent, and also she's one of the people I'm talking about where her record is really spotty, and that she had one win and. She was next for the title, so it's... uh, Yeah, I don't understand that division. But Karin, what did you think about this fight? It was a lot different
2: than I kind of thought it
1: would be. I I had some inkling that it might
2: end up playing this way just because I've seen Joanne Calderwood fight way more times than I've seen Lauren Murphy. Um, But I know that she has a tendency to be a pretty technical striker and have decent Muay Thai and have, like, okay submissions off her back every once in a while, but she also kind of has a tendency to over rely on her jujitsu when she gets taken down.
1: Did you agree with the decision? It was a split decision victory for Lauren Murphy, but I think, you know, a lot of people had it for Calderwood as well.
2: Yeah, I I think Murphy probably edged it out. Um, just because I've seen I've seen other people win decisions over Joe in the same way. She ends up just kind of having this thing where She doesn't try to like wrestle off takedowns as much as she should, and she kind of lets people back into the fight that way. But um, I was impressed with Lauren Murphy for being able to punish her for that instinct and to be able to keep grinding and stuff on her. To piggyback off what you were saying about other divisions and stuff, like um, you know, Lauren Murphy has a five-fight win streak, which is the same win streak that Marvin Vittori had for his challenge at Israel Adesanya. But the win streak isn't what got Marvin the fight. It was a win over Kevin Holland, who had just lost to Derek Brunson like the week before, so they kind of just decided he was gonna get it <laughs> um and that seems like things that happen in like other you know um particularly like male divisions. It seems like sometimes when it comes to female title challengers, it's really just the u f c being like I don't know. Who do we even have? Like, sure, you can fight for the belt. I don't really care. And I think that's just a weird, like weird division to see between how they treat their male
1: athletes and their female athletes. Paul, what did you think about this fight? And did you agree that Lauren Murphy
0: won the fight? I thought Calderwood did enough to win, but not enough that I would say it's robbery by any means. And John Annick mentioned that Lauren Murphy didn't do anything athletic until she was 26. And I'm assuming that means competition, not that she's never played a sport ever. What I found fascinating was you see the gaps in terms of athletes whenever they start a sport late in terms of how comfortable they look when they're just moving around. And Murphy seemed lot more stiff than Calderwood it could be that Calderwood has a Muay Thai background so she's more used to fighting and striking whereas Murphy just always looked like I'm gonna counter and no matter what happened Murphy was tense and willing to absorb the strikes instead of moving out the way and this is true for both instead of circling out they would either clash in a straight line or just absorb and try to counter right away And when it came to those kind of exchanges, I thought Calderwood did a little bit better, but it was the grappling of Murphy and a close, I think, round one that had it in Murphy's favor. So you think the first round was closer than the third round? It's close enough. I thought the first round was closer with Calderwood just pulling ahead in both rounds one and three. This is where stats could be wrong as far as giving
1: you an impression of the fight. In both round one and round three, Joanne Calderwood outlanded her by a significant number. But in the first round, Lauren Murphy only went for one takedown and it was unsuccessful. In the third round, she went for three takedowns. They were all unsuccessful. But I think this is one of those like Damien Maya rounds that Damien thought he was winning, but he didn't because he didn't do enough of the striking. Lauren Murphy, even though in being unsuccessful with the takedowns in round one or round three, Mixed in enough strikes and actually hit the opponent enough where whether that impressed the judges along with the takedowns as aggression and effective grappling, or it fooled them. Grappling, mixing it in, even without the takedowns being successful, if you could just land enough shots, then you might be able to steal the round. And so I think this is a good comparison. What Lauren Murphy did versus what Damian Maya did, where Damian Maya just spam takedowns and did very little striking he did land left straights but like no combinations and nothing really other than the left straight and maybe it was like three left straights per round so laura murphy got outstruck but she was able to do enough damage and mix in other stuff other aspects of mma that impressed the judges which we're not going to get into it too much but i was disappointed with alexis davis where Like Lauren Murphy, she did good as far as being effective striking, but she didn't mix in any takedowns. You know, there's a spectrum of being grappler strikers where you might spam too much and not do enough striking and end up losing a fight like Damian Maya. You might not spam enough takedowns, period, and just do kind of mediocre striking and lose a decision like Alexis Davis versus Pani Kianzad. Or you could do just the right amount of blend where maybe you might have even lost the round, but it was enough scrapping and mixing it up and aggression and kind of pushing and bullying your opponent around where you could still win that decision. And Lauren Murphy seemed to have that right combination. And I think that is the key to how she's been winning is she has been mixing it up better than all her previous opponents where she mixes in the strikes and the takedowns. So that's a good style. For MMA, which is that she's doing MMA, and uh, she's one of those fighters where I could see after this she could go on a five-fight losing streak, fighting the exact same way because just random luck. When you have close fights, you could have the coin flip one way five times in a row, and then you could just have coin flips go the other way. Even if they went the same exact way as the previous five, you could have different judges and they just judge it the other way. So that's the problem with this kind of style also, where you're not definitive. Is Sometimes people are like, what happened to this fighter? Why are they on a bad streak? And it's like, nothing happened. That's what happens when you have this kind of style, this very 50-50 kind of style. It's just about who's judging that day. And you could have just had the right judges five times in a row. And then you could also go on a streak where you have the wrong judges five times in a row. Or you're fighting the wrong cities five times in a row where the audience kind of sways the judges. Yeah. But let's move on to the last fight I want to talk about. And this is a fight I want to kind of highlight because this was the first fight on the prelim card, though I think it should have been higher because this is a fight between two prospects. And really, I want to do a prospect alert for Movzar Evloev because he's somebody who is really looking good in the featherweight division. He hasn't fought that many times in the UFC. He's still very young, but he's looked so good and so dominant. And he fought Hakim Dawoodu, who's also a prospect, tremendous kickboxing record, and was on a five-fight winning streak, even beating Habib Nurmagomedov's cousin in a split decision. But actually going back to the Lauren Murphy example, in his five-fight win streak, he's won three of them by split decision. (laughs) So he has one of those styles where he could go either way or you could fight somebody and they just tip it really to the other way and just win by dominant decision. So Evloev is one of those guys who just doesn't seem to tire out, not only can spam takedowns, but is successful with takedowns and just puts on a pace. And his striking isn't like the same level, I would say, as Hakim, but it's so fast that he can make up for it. So, Paul, what did you make of this performance?
0: I thought Evloev did very well, especially in the grappling portion. And one of the ways you could tell Evloev has good grappling is just look at how he was able to control... Dawoodu's hips when he had him down. He constantly switched between triangling his own legs to going for traditional hooks or crossing his ankles whenever Dawoodu shifted his body weight up. And just by going back and forth between those three, Dawoodu never really had a chance to escape. And I think part of Evloev's striking setup is reminiscent of a fighter later on in the card, Damian Maya. It's used to set up, Clinch entries and his defense is mostly moving his head off center, but unfortunately, when he hangs out too long in the open, that's where Dao Du is able to clip him with hooks and straight punches. And a promising sign was Evloev's right hand; it's always glued to his chin, which is a sign of discipline and a show that he's not as tired as it might seem. And I think in the long run, he is going to have to figure out a better way to get within range other than an overhand into a takedown. Cain Velasquez used this to great effect, but got clipped famously against Junior Dos Santos the first time around when he got a little bit overzealous. And that's not what got Evloev in trouble in this fight, but there didn't seem to be a lot of answers for Dawudu striking. And by playing with fire, he let Dawoodu get back in the fight briefly in that third round and rocked. And it wasn't until he realized, oh, okay, enough of that. And then he just grabbed him and took him down again. It's like, oof, that was close. And he just got back into the fight. It's like you said, Sam, it is a good prospect watch to see where both fighters will go from here. And within the next three or four, maybe five fights for both guys, I want to see them again and see who's made the more substantial improvements.
1: This was a bad style matchup for Dawadu in that he could have kept going on his impressive streak if he didn't have to fight somebody who could do unlimited takedowns. And it's actually very impressive for Evloev because that would do his whole thing is fighting off takedowns and beating you on points striking. So he was able to pass that test where he could beat a striker whose whole thing is about defending takedowns and be able to take the person down and hold them on the ground and continue to take them to the ground and win in that fashion. When Evloev did get rocked, I wasn't too concerned because in scouting out this fight, even though Dawoodoo has a tremendous kickboxing record, everybody thinks if you're a tremendous striker that you're a KO machine, but there's all kinds of strikers. Just like not every NCAA champion is a takedown artist. There's a lot of different types of wrestling. So Dawadu doesn't have a lot of KOs. So even though he rocked him, I was like, Dawoodoo's thing is not knocking people out. He just beats you with better striking. And so... I knew that would play well to Evloev's style and that he would be able to come back. Now, what happens to Evloev when he fights somebody who is known for knocking people out and defending takedowns? That's going to be the next big test. But he's with American Top Team, so that's a good sign because American Top Team is really good about taking wrestlers and turning them into good strikers and also taking good strikers and teaching them wrestling defense. So that's good. Karian, what did you think about Evloev's performance but also going into this fight did you know anything about him was he somebody that you were looking forward to watching
2: um yeah when i um looked into this fight a little bit more i made sure to go back and um, watch some of evilev's um previous fights um and i really liked his performance against nick lintz because you see him end up in a position that looks pretty bad where he ends up kind of caught in a guillotine for a while and i saw him in that fight take the time to calm down in the submission attempt and work his defense back up and then after he got out he was just all over Nikolens in a way that almost looked like he was like punishing him for having dared try to submit him and i saw a lot of that here too where um dawadu definitely didn't have as much of a submission threat or anything to really threaten um back in the grappling exchanges but after he had been clipped or things like that it seemed like that kind of sparked a little bit of the drive in evil of to be like okay you just hit me so now i really have to like put it on you with my grappling he had really great just like peek outs to the back off of his shots i love seeing that because um something i really appreciate is having that different kind of wrestling style because so many people now especially when they see russian fighter really good wrestling everyone expects like okay so you're gonna be a habib clone and It's really great to see different styles of wrestling coming out of those areas of the world and to see how, you know, there are a lot of really great wrestlers out there in Russia, in the United States, and all of wrestling that have just a lot different games of wrestling to bring to the table. Not everyone's gonna look the same, not everyone from Dagestan even is going to look like Habib. And yeah, I'm I'm really excited for Ivloev's future. He's someone that, in the past and going forward, he looks like he's going to be able to out-grapple people that are getting the better of him in the striking exchanges. And if he does get in trouble in the grappling, he has good enough striking that he can probably defend the takedowns and keep the fight on the feet if he needs to. Yeah, I am worried about seeing him against someone that can defend a shot really well and has really good knockout power in crisp striking. But hopefully by the time he gets there, his striking defense and... His ability to mix in his striking and wrestling will have improved enough to hold up to that challenge. And this doesn't look bad for Dawoodoo either, because in my opinion, this kind of looks similar to a lot of his fights that he's actually won via those split decisions where he can either get out, grappled a little bit, or he can kind of be caught waiting a little bit too long in the first few rounds and give up some points. But he really comes in really strong in the third round. Some of the KOs that he has in MMA are from that ability to kind of come into the last round when everyone's tired and still be putting out the same pace and crisp striking as he was before. It's another example of that thing with lower weight classes where I just kind of wish they all fought five rounds.
1: And when you're talking about KOs in MMA, go look up Hakeem Dawadu's record. And the reason why I said he's not known for his KOs is because, yeah, you see a bunch of KOs, like his first Five fights were all KO, TKO, but look where they were. They were all in World Series of Fighting, right? (laughs) And then he gets to the UFC and it's all like decisions, split decisions. He had one loss early on and he fought a former UFC fighter in Steven Seiler, who is competent, but that was his first decision, right? He had finished everybody. He had a draw. And then when he fought somebody who was UFC caliber or used to be UFC caliber, he had a decision with him. So that's why I think maybe that doesn't speak so much to his KO ability, but more to like how long he's been ready for the UFC and was fighting in organizations that didn't have the best competition for him. But to your point though, From those fights to his recent fights, he does come on strong at the end. And especially, I think, in round three is when he's at his most dangerous. The one KO he did have in the UFC was in the third round. It was by head kick. So that's the other thing about power is that even people who don't have amazing punching power, they do sometimes have head kick knockouts on their record. So he kind of lived up to all those kind of uh, stereotypes. Yeah. With that said, going back to Evloev, he is somebody who also used to fight at bantamweight for most of his career. Yeah. And he's in the featherweight division. So that's two concerns. He's number one in one of the most competitive divisions in the UFC. And number two, it might end up that he is small compared to some of the other fighters in that division. So we'll see how he does, especially when he fights somebody who's Better than Hakeem at defending takedowns, a harder hitter, and even bigger. Let's end it here. Paul, you're not on any social media,
0: but what do you have cooking up for us? So right now, I'm doing a deep dive into the career of Charles Dubronx Oliveira. And the more I dig, the more fascinating it becomes. Just as a snippet, did you know that his MMA debut was in a one-night tournament that he won? He fought three fights in one night. That's amazing.
2: Ooh, nice.
0: Doesn't he also have like health problems that people don't know about? Yeah, he has some diagnosis, I believe. I don't know off the top of my head, but he got diagnosed at age seven and the doctors essentially told him he would never walk and he would be wheelchair bound. And here he is knocking out Michael Chandler. So fuck that doctor. He doesn't know what he's talking about.
1: <laughs> or maybe the doctor was right. And it's just that the Bronx don't give a fuck, you know?
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> Bronx is just made of something else. Yeah,
1: yeah. He's just like that honey badger. Karian, where can people find you and what do you have cooking up?
2: Yeah, so first you can find me um, at Power Tools on Twitter. And you can find me, it's also Power Tools on Instagram, but it's spelled differently. Um, we can have both those spellings put in the show notes. <laughs> and then I am currently working on a new little segment that I'm going to have coming up for Southpaw. There's going to be a little teaser episode really soon. It's just kind of focusing mostly on representation and getting more eyes on the LGBTQ um, community within combat sports. It's something that I think is pretty important. Um, You know, I'm a trans woman, I'm also like bi sexually. Um, You know, so growing up in the combat sports world, that's been something that. took me a long time to figure out about myself. And when I did, it kind of affected how comfortable I would feel in the space and how much I feel willing to uh, immerse myself in the larger culture sometimes. And yeah, I think think this is going to be a good thing to work towards making that culture a little bit better.
1: And then you also recently did an alternative commentary fight with me that's going to be a Patreon exclusive, so make sure you sign up for Patreon if you want to watch and listen to this. But can you tell people what fight this was? Yeah, we did a
2: little alternative commentary for Fedor Emelianenko versus Andrei Orlovsky. at Affliction Two Day of Reckoning.
1: <laughs> so a lot of weird information about this fight as well. <laughs> yes. So it's going to be a fun listen. Look for that on Patreon. If you don't support us on Patreon, you should support us on Patreon, not just because of like one of those funny things like where I'm going to say, "Oh, you should support us because guilt trip and blah 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 blah." But you should actually support us because what we do is very important. We don't just talk about MMA, we talk about a lot of other things. And even when we talk about MMA, we talk about it in a very important way, which is left-facing, inclusive, and thinking about things from a bottom- up, decolonial anti-misogynist way so for all those reasons we can't keep this going without your support and on top of that if you support us you get access to cool stuff so <laughs> support us please
0: yes south paul hidden with the left south paul sam paul south paul South Pole